Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, it's been a big week for news. There are many things happening in the world. Of course, there were the January 6th hearings, which um, are not at all the partisan witch hunt that Republicans are claiming. Most of the witnesses have been Republicans. That should be a pretty obvious point. And most have been avid Trump supporters. Most of them did this lunatic's bidding up until the last moment when they were staring into the abyss. Some of them, like Cassidy Hutchinson, whose testimony was the most damaging to Trump, have everything to lose from coming forward. No doubt she and her family are now besieged by death threats and very real security concerns. She was an extremely compelling witness. She was obviously a Republican partisan down to her toes, and yet she recognized that what happened in the run-up to January 6th, all the cultic hysteria whipped up by the big lie, and then what happened on the day itself was an abomination. Perhaps I should emphasize for the hundredth time that political partisanship has nothing to do with this. Liz Cheney is one of the people running these hearings. She is a conservative Republican. She is pro-life and against gay marriage. She is, by my lights, a religious extremist. I am sure I disagree with 95% of her politics. But she is a straight-up American hero in my book. On a bad day, she's doing more to support and defend the Constitution of the United States than the rest of the Republican Party has done in years. She is standing between us and the utter dismantling and desecration of our democracy. This is not a partisan point. For instance, I'll concede that almost anything bad that is said about the Democrats now is probably true. Biden appears unfit for office. Whether he's actually senile, I don't know. But he simply can't communicate the way the president needs to. I mean, you watch these speeches and interviews and press conferences, insofar as they even take place. Every sentence is a death-defying feat. It's like watching your mom do parkour. You're just waiting for the worst thing that has ever happened every fucking second. And he is totally unfit to run again in 2024. And Kamala Harris is probably worse, though she might be fine neurologically. She still manages to speak in word salad, in an apparent effort to talk down to people. (laughs) Have you seen these snippets of her circulating? Many of the things she says are completely mystifying. It's like someone trained an AI on woke Twitter and had it talk to itself for the equivalent of a thousand years, and it went properly insane. And as a political candidate, she manages to convey a disingenuousness that makes Hillary Clinton seem like Will Rogers. This administration is doomed, right, and has been doomed almost since the very beginning. But Biden and Harris saved our democracy by beating Trump. 
and as odious and as incompetent as the Democrats have become, there is simply no comparison between them and what the Republicans have become under Trump. Trump and Trumpism is not just a symptom of a deeper problem. They are that too, but they are also a cancer that has been actively destroying our politics. You have to cut out the cancer. Trump has always been and remains a litmus test. The real Trump derangement syndrome is to not see how abnormal he is as a person and to not see or to not care how abnormal it is that such a person could have ever become the President of the United States. Right, that's the real Trump derangement syndrome. To say or to think things like, well, all politicians lie, right? What's the difference with Trump? There's no both sides to this political moment. Making Trump president was like making Alex Jones the lead anchor on the nightly news. Whatever you want to say about the media, whatever you want to say about CNN, for instance, about the errors of journalism they make over there, and about how woke everyone is, it would be orders of magnitude worse, and the degradation of our journalistic standards would be complete if they swapped in Alex Jones for Anderson Cooper. That would be a totally different world, journalistically speaking. And that's where we are with the Republican Party. Apart from the few brave people, like Liz Cheney, who are trying to save it from itself. Anyway, if you haven't been following the hearings, for whatever reason, you're missing something. Right? The window they have opened onto the last days of the Trump administration is beyond unflattering. And the prospect that we may one day see the orange man in an orange jumpsuit seems to have grown a little. It's hard to imagine him not being prosecuted now, after what we've learned. That is, of course, if he doesn't become president again in the meantime, which remains a real possibility. Now, of course, the biggest development in recent weeks was the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. Some people have asked for my thoughts on that and about the ethics of abortion generally. Perhaps I'll do a podcast on that at some point. But um, briefly, I guess the first thing to say about Roe is that the writing was always on the wall for Roe, right? It has always seemed like a dubious judicial decision and just the wrong way to enshrine abortion rights at the federal level. And the fact that we've been relying on it for 50 years has been a failure of governance, right? The Democrats knew how precarious Roe was, and yet they completely failed to pass legislation, much less an amendment to the Constitution, to properly guarantee this right for women. Right? So there's a lot of blame to go around, and the Democrats share in that blame. That said, I think repealing Roe is going to be unambiguously bad for women, in particular poor women in red states. And it'll be bad for the red states, too. I think the spectacle of having desperate women prosecuted as murderers for going out of state to terminate a pregnancy or taking illegal medication at home, this will be bad for business. I think you'll find that corporations don't much like being associated with a real-life version of The Handmaid's Tale. 
But again, this will only hurt red states. But I don't think the problem necessarily stops here. Right? I do think there's a larger concern about creeping theocracy. Now let's call this for what it is, right? What happened here? The unjustified and unjustifiable religious beliefs of Catholics on the Supreme Court have delivered this change in our society. This is religion, pure and simple. There is simply no valid ethical argument that privileges the interests of a single fertilized ovum over those of a woman whose life is going to be completely deranged by being forced to have a child. It's not just that pro-life absolutists have bad arguments. They have no arguments for banning abortion at the earliest stages. But then pro-choice absolutists are also extremists. Anyone who would argue for abortion as an absolute right of a woman at every stage of pregnancy, as though terminating a fetus in the third trimester had no ethical implications beyond a woman's bodily autonomy, such people are just not making contact with the real ethical terrain here. So our political debate about abortion seems pretty confused, and it ignores the very sensible intuitions that most people have on this topic. I mean, most people recognize that a clump of cells is not a person, while a 30-week-old fetus is so close to being a bouncing baby that it is a person. The real problem here is to figure out where that change happens, and therefore where it becomes ethically complicated to terminate a pregnancy. The most important question for me is at what point in development can a fetus conceivably suffer? That's not the only consideration, but I think it's the main one. And here it's reasonable to think that sensory connections to the cortex are the relevant threshold. We can be even more conservative than that and draw the line somewhere earlier, but it's not an accident that most people think that the first trimester and the third trimester are very different, ethically speaking. And the difference is in the presence or absence of the nervous system structures that could conceivably produce suffering. Terminating a pregnancy at 10 weeks is just different than terminating one at 30 weeks. Given what we know about developmental neuroscience, I would say that the first should be at the total discretion of the mother, and the second should require very serious justification, like saving the mother's life, or saving the child from some utterly horrific suffering, should it be born. And obviously, emergency late-term abortions should and do include anesthesia. At a certain stage in pregnancy, you have to treat a fetus as a being who can suffer. But over 90% of abortions happen in the first trimester. And given what we know, that should be a legal practice available to all women, especially given what we know about the effects on a society that outlaws that practice. Ultimately, there's a lot of ethical work still ahead of us to understand human development in a fine-grained way and to specify exactly where a fetus, even a specific fetus, becomes a person to which we want to ascribe independent interests. But most people know that the extremes are very different, 10 weeks and 30 weeks, say. And where we draw the line should be somewhere in the middle of that range. 
and yet our political discourse tends not to reflect this. But the fact that we appear to be moving into a situation where abortion at every stage will be illegal in half the country, that is clearly a step backwards, politically and ethically. And we have Iron Age religion to thank for it. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Morgan Housel. Morgan is a partner at the Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. He is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers. He's also the winner of the New York Times Sydney Award and a two-time finalist for the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. And he has written a wonderful book titled The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. And this is the topic of our conversation. We discuss how personal history shapes one's view of economic risk, the implications of not understanding the future, the difference between rich and wealthy, how we measure success, the problem of social comparison, happiness versus life satisfaction, saving and investing, Warren Buffett and the power of compounding, rational versus reasonable decisions, the role of luck, optimism versus pessimism, dollar cost averaging, and other topics. Anyway, I found it a very useful conversation, and I hope you do as well. And I bring you Morgan Housel. I am here with Morgan Housel. Morgan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. So you, you wrote this really wonderful book, The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. And um, I, I, I want to talk about a lot of what's in that book and uh, anything else you, you think on these topics. Uh, but before we jump in, I, I, I guess two things. I want to acknowledge that we're having this conversation at an interesting moment. We, we seem poised on the brink of some kind of recession. And the, uh, the stock market has been fairly crazy. And just one interesting reference point that jumped out at me. Uh, I think at some point in your book, you, you single out Netflix as a company that has made stratospheric gains. And I now notice that Netflix has lost almost all of those gains. I mean, certainly lost five years worth of gains seemingly overnight. So uh, a lot can change here, obviously. And we don't know when people will be listening to this conversation. I think it's, this will be evergreen. And they're just very different moments in the life of any economy, in the life of any person. It's fascinating to see how it's changed even since your book was published. It's, it's interesting for sure. What, what I would note too, uh, you know, something with Netflix you mentioned, what, what I mentioned in the book is Netflix during a period of 2002 to 2018 mm-hmm. increased like 500 fold. It went up 500 fold. That's yeah. just cherry picking in hindsight. But during that period, it lost 70% of its value twice. Right. And it lost half of its value on six separate occasions, despite increasing 500 fold during that period. I think that's relevant today as it goes through another 70% climb, uh, as, as you pointed out, that I think a lot of what we deal with in the economy and the stock market, whenever we go through these periods, like we have in the last six months, when a lot of things decline and collapse and there's a lot of volatility, I think the huge majority of what we are experiencing is normal volatility, normal accidents, normal uncertainty that you should expect with 100% certainty to occur during your life mm-hmm. in the stock market, in the economy. It's rarely phrased like that. It's always, even in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and the Financial Times, 
it's, it's phrased as like crisis, surprise, catastrophe, even if what we are dealing with is something that you should, that has always occurred at fairly regular intervals and will always occur at fairly regular intervals. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of the details there when we talk about investing and, and just the, the psychology of it. But before we jump in, perhaps you can summarize your background. How, how did you come to focus on money and, and wealth and related matters? And perhaps this might be the time to talk about the way in which a person's personal history can provide a lens through which they, they look at these topics. And it's a lens that's fairly difficult to change. So you, you, I think it, it might so you have some interesting things in your book on that topic. How does personal history and personal bias play in here as well? Well, I had a, a pretty unique background starting in my teenage years. I was a competitive ski racer growing up in Lake Tahoe. And because I was a competitive ski racer, I more or less bypassed high school. Not because I was, I was smart enough to bypass it, just because it was viewed as getting in the way mm-hmm. of competitive ski racing. So I did an independent study program for high school, that was a joke. There was, there, was, there was effectively no academics involved. It was a program that was designed for juvenile delinquents, right. which I was not one, mm-hmm. but was, that's what it was designed for. And I did, I did nothing. I did n- basically no academic work for it. When I was 16, they gave me a piece of paper to, that said diploma on it. But for all intents and purposes, I, I, I had an eighth grade education, and then I stopped after that. And during my teenage years, it was, it was a lot of fun. I was ski racing all over the world. It was great. But as I became a later teen, 18, 19 years old, and all my friends started going off to college, I had this moment of, what now? What do I do? They all have this skill set in terms of a high school education that I did not. And they're all going into college that I felt I was completely inadequately prepared for, which I was. Um, I started as a valet at a high-end hotel in Lake Tahoe during that period. And that was my first exposure to wealthy people. Hmm. I grew up in a, in a middle-class household, but I'd never been exposed to very wealthy people. And at the hotel, you had people coming in in their Ferraris and their Rolls Royces, and I had just never seen that before. And as I was, you know, I was 19 years old, I was very naive in my worldview. My first reaction as a 19-year-old man was, I want to be that guy. The guy driving the yellow Ferrari, that's who I want to be. And I think it's funny now because that's like the, the opposite of what I want to be, what I aspire to. But that was my first view of like, there is another side of the world out there that I don't know about, and I want it, and I want it badly. And so this was the early 2000s. The huge majority of those people who I met who were very wealthy worked in finance. And that was kind of my first exposure to like, okay, I want to get into finance because I want to be that guy. And I had this chip on my shoulder in terms of my lack of education. And as the years went on, I finally started college when I was about 20. And I had to start at the most remedial levels of effectively, you know, I I stopped at eighth grade and I had to start back Mm -hmm. at that level at a local junior college, community college. Eventually worked my way up. I graduated from USC. It took, it took me many years to get there. I think I was in college for six, maybe seven years if you added it all up because I had to make up for so much lost time. Mm-hmm. But I, it, my, my entire goal during that period was I want to work in finance. I want to be an investment banker. I want to move to New York and work for Goldman Sachs. That's what I wanted to do. And in the early 2000s, that's what a lot of young men in particular wanted to do because investment banking had this allure of like, that's where the power, that's where the money is. And when you're 21, 22 years old, you're just so enamored by that. And then, so I was going to be an investment banker. And then I got an investment banking internship in Los Angeles. And you did your degree in, in economics? That's right. Hmm. Yeah. I have, a, I, have a, I have a BA in economics from, from USC. And uh, I got my, and so I started this investment banking internship. And, on, and this was my dream. This is what I had aspired to do. I had put all of my eggs in this one basket. And on day one, 
even not, not even day one, like hour one of this investment banking internship, I realized it was not for me. This is just not going to work. The, the culture of investment banking, particularly back then, was really geared towards hazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was not geared towards productivity or solving problems. It was like, how much can we torture you to see if we can break you? And if we can break you, then you don't fit in here. And I was just, my personality, like some people thrived in that environment. I was like, get, get me out of here. I, 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 couldn't, I, I couldn't last. You know, it was supposed to be a several month long internship, summer internship, and I lasted like a month and it was just a torturous month. So then I'm like, okay, I need to do something else. And then I got a job in private equity. And this was the summer of 2007. I uh, got, got an internship at a private equity firm. And I really liked private equity. It was a great- Can you just differentiate those two areas for people? Because I, I, I'm sure some people could define investment banking and private equity, but I would, I would imagine many can't. So how are, how are those different? So investment banking is really a service industry of you get hired by a corporation to help you transact in a deal. So if a big company like Microsoft wants to buy another company, they want to acquire another business, they will hire an investment bank to kind of do the administrative work for them, which is creating presentations to sell the board of directors, getting the deal done, all the kind of behind the scenes, valuation analysis, legal analysis to get this big merger done. That's at least one aspect of, of what investment banking is. Right. Private equity, you are an, actually an investor writing checks, where a private equity firm is like an investing fund that will go out and buy an entire business. They'll go out and buy a big industrial company that was for sale. And then they will not only invest in it, but they will now run it and manage it and kind of take over the business and do what needs to be done to run that, that business. So the, the, the banking side is very transactional and private equity was more of like, you're actually a long-term investor or a mm-hmm. somewhat long-term investor here. Right. And I really like that side of like, it was half finance and half business. It wasn't just a transaction. It was like, let's run a business now. So I really like private equity. And I was like, great, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work in private equity. And that was the summer of 2007, which uh, if you recall, that's when the global economy started breaking up. That was like the, the early innings of the financial crisis. Yeah. And then so the fund that I was at started, got into some trouble, as a lot of funds did. And I was, I was the junior analyst and they came to me and said, look, there's, there's not going to be a full-time spot for you. The fund was really struggling at the time. So then it's like, okay, I'm just about to graduate. I have a degree in economics. The entire financial world is collapsing around me, the whole industry. Nobody was hiring in 2007, 2008. And I don't know what I want to do. And that was kind of a hard, tough moment for me. But then I had a friend who was a writer at The Molly Fool. And he said, hey, The Molly Fool is hiring investing writers. If you're looking for a job, you should apply. And I had no interest in writing. It was never part of the plan. I had no desire. I didn't enjoy it. I never thought in a million years that this was what I would do. But I took the job out of desperation. I just needed a paycheck at the time. And I thought, okay, I'll be a financial writer writing about the stock market. I'll, I'll do this for a couple of months until I find another private equity job. But I ended up staying for uh, 10 years at The Motley Fool. Mm. And that was really where I learned how to write and also learned that I liked writing and I enjoyed it. And I loved the process of being an outsider. I, like, I'm not a fund manager. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an economist. I just kind of sit at my desk in my house and observe what's going on in the economic world and try to piece together what I think is happening and what I can learn from it and any kind of insights that I might be able to glean and then write about it as an outsider. And I really enjoyed that process. So it was a completely serendipitous, haphazard path to where I got. But I think a lot of careers work like that. So I spent the last 15 years now or so just trying to figure out what's going on inside of people's heads when they're thinking about 
risk and greed and reward and uncertainty and just trying to write an interesting story that will capture people's attention about what's going on in the global economy. Yeah, well, your, your outsider status has caused you to produce uh, such a, an unusual and, and useful book because it it's not a a normal finance book. It is a book, as you say, which focuses on just how to integrate the issue and problem of money and wealth into a balanced and fulfilling life, right? And so many people get that wrong, and so many rich people get that wrong. It's just it's bewildering, and it's it's fascinating to be kind of be led through your thinking about this, uh, and it's just very convergent with what we're doing over at Waking Up and, and thinking about global issues in the context of living a more examined, fulfilling life. What does your personal history, with, so, so not everyone has experienced a major downturn at the moment they became uh, or were sort of struggling to become financially independent. You hear stories about people who lived through the Great Depression and and what that did to them, and, and, and there are people who missed that entirely, and they're almost in the same age bracket. Maybe you can say some general things about how a person's experience can define their attitude toward money and building wealth comprehensively. Yeah, well, let me tell you two stories here. One that's kind of a follow-up to my career and one that's just a little bit more personal. You know, what I, I, so I started as a writer in 2007, which is when the financial crisis began. So I spent the early years of my career writing just trying to write about and piece together what happened during the global financial crisis of 2008. And as the years went on, it was, I, I, I kind of realized as time went on that you could not find the answer to the question of what happened. Like, why did the financial crisis happen? Why did people make the decisions that they did during the housing bubble and during the bust? You could not find the answer to that question in a finance textbook or an economics textbook. It just, there's nothing in those fields that could accurately explain why people did the things that they did. But you could find little clues about what happened and explanations for what happened if you are thinking through the lens of psychology, like greed and fear, and sociology, keeping up with the Joneses, and politics, like, how, like why certain regulations are put into place, history, all of these other fields that had nothing to do with finance could really accurately explain why it happened. And so that to me was just this, this idea that there's so much more to finance and economics than finance and economics. It was, they, these are all uh, fields that study how people think and how people behave. And behavior is such a big and broad, all-encompassing field. There was a lot that we could learn about economics and finance through the lens of these other fields. That was kind of my first opening to this idea of like, I want to write about finance and think about finance. But, I, but not through the lens of finance. That's boring. And I think it's just woefully incomplete. Yeah. I want to look at this as more of like a sociology perspective. And I think that's a good segue into the other part of your question, which is that we tend to think of finance like it's a math-based field. It's just numbers and data and charts and formulas. And it's, it's like engineering or it's like physics where it's very clean and precise. That's how finance and economics tends to be taught, like down to the decimal precision. And everything we know about it is that it's not. It's, a, it's just people make decisions with their money and have outlooks about the economy and their greed and fear that are all just based off of their personality and their psychology. And so much of that is just anchored to the own unique experiences of their personal history. And since everyone from different generations and different countries and different socioeconomic statuses have very different backgrounds and experiences in the world, everyone thinks about finance and economics differently. I think that's why it tends to be a controversial field 
in a way that like physics and meteorology is not controversial. It's not that it's not say we don't that we know everything, but the arguments that take place in economics over like what's the right tax rate, how should we promote entrepreneurship, are so fierce in economics. And I think the reason is is because there is no one right answer. Everyone is just doing what makes sense to them through their own lens of what they've experienced in life. And a couple examples of this. One that I think is really interesting is that before COVID, Australia had not had a recession in 30 years. Hmm. They went 30 years without a single recession. A lot of that was just because China had an insatiable appetite for their natural resources. So this had this giant economic tailwind. So 30 years, no recession. Whereas in the United States, we had three recessions during that period, two of which were like crippling, devastating recessions that reset our entire society. And so the people of Australia, of course, are just as smart as anyone in America. They have the same information as anyone in America. They have, they're, they're learning about the same topics, but they had a completely different view of economic risk than anyone in the United States would. And it's not because one side is smarter than one another. It's just like the dumb luck of their individual experiences. And then you get into these, these things of like, if you grew up during the Great Depression, of course, you thought about economic risk totally differently from the rest of your life than someone who did not. And that's all well-documented and whatnot. I was once having a conversation with Daniel Kahneman, who of course is a uh, psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And we were talking about how our individual past shape how we view about risk. And he brought up this almost chilling point that he grew up in, as a child in a Jewish family in Nazi-occupied France. Mm. That was his upbringing. And how that made him think about risk and just the, the kind of outlook of humanity in a pessimistic way, way more than I ever would. And what's important about this is too, is like, I can learn about World War II. I can read about the Holocaust. But until you have the emotional scar tissue of experiencing it firsthand, it's never going to be even remotely as persuasive as it would be. Like nothing is more persuasive than what you have experienced firsthand. And this is when people who think and go out of their way to be open-minded and empathetic to other people's experiences, everyone, including myself, including you, everybody is just kind of a prisoner to their own past of the dumb luck of where they were born, when they were born, and the people who they kind of just happen to meet along the way, the experiences that they happen to have along their path. And so we all think we're being objective about how the real world works. But I think the truth is nobody is. And I think that Mm. really comes through with how people manage their money and think about the economy. Yeah, Kahneman is so useful here because not only does he have his personal experience, but his field of the field that he has largely invented of behavioral economics, he can draw lessons that are you know, highly counterintuitive because so much of his focus is on how our intuitions prove to be bad in various circumstances. And you know, one thing that's relevant here, which I believe you discuss somewhere in your book, is, is how he thinks about our capacity for surprise and that we, we tend to draw the, the wrong lesson from surprising events because the lesson people draw is, you know, some there's a let's say there's a surprising downturn. Let's say, in this case, Netflix loses seventy percent of its value overnight, and you think that okay, now you understand that you, you you can build this into your model that this is the kind of thing that is going to happen in the future. But what you really should be building into your model, perhaps in addition to the first lesson, is surprising things are are going to continue to happen, and they will be different, right? Your your capacity to be surprised is not going away and you can't merely look at past surprises in preparation for the, the, the future surprise. What you have to actually factor in is you don't understand the future. 
That's it. It's, and it's really hard for people to grasp that we have no clue what the biggest news story of the next year, five years, 10 years is going to be. But that's always been the case. I don't think there's ever been a time in modern history when we knew what the biggest news story of the next five years was going to be preemptively. Like it's always been the case that the biggest news story was something that no, virtually nobody saw coming. COVID, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, the Great Depression, all of these things that were like just like generational defining events that no one or virtually no one saw coming before they happened. So that's always the common, non, the common denominator of these big events. It's not that they were like big. It's not that they were massive events. Well, sometimes they are. It's that no one was prepared for them before they came. I'll give you one recent example of this that I think is really interesting. The Economist, which is a magazine that I really admire. I think they do great work. But every January, they put out a, 12, a review for the year ahead. Here's what to expect over the next 12 months. They do this every January. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and look at their January of 2020 edition for what to expect in 2020, right. there's not a single word about COVID, which of course, as they were writing that edition in, in December 2019, it was, it was an unknowable event at that point. And then if you go back and look at their edition from January of 2022 of this year, there's not a single word about Russia or Ukraine, which again, of course, like you could not have known with any kind of precision that that was going to take place. But COVID and Russia and Ukraine are probably the, the, the biggest events of those periods, but they were completely unknown 60 days before they took place by some of the best journalists in the world. And I think that's, that's not a criticism of them because that's just an example of it's always the case that even within a 60-day window, we have no clue what the biggest news story is going to be. I think that's true today. And it, I, I can say that with confidence because, again, it's, it's, it's always been like that. But mm-hmm. no matter how many times we experience it, I think it's just so uncomfortable to accept that level of uncertainty. And there's always going to be just an insatiable demand for people to think that they can see the future or to pay to people who, who tell them that they, can, that they can see the future because the reality of accepting otherwise is so painful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that uh, proviso in mind, uh, let's uh, think through our relationship to money and wealth and, and related matters from something like first principles. I think let's start with the differentiation you make between being rich and being wealthy. How do you think about those two uh, you know, seemingly synonymous concepts? I would first start by saying I, I made these definitions up, so people shouldn't take them too seriously. Mm-hmm. But rich, I, I described as you, you have enough money to pay your monthly bills to live the lifestyle that you want to live. You can make your mortgage payment, your car payment. You have the monthly cash to, make, to, to, to cover your spending. Wealth is a completely different thing. Wealth is the money that you have not spent. It's money that is saved up and invested and unspent, banked up, sitting around that you're not doing anything with. That's what wealth is. It's a, and it's a very different concept because you know, I, I think that the biggest reason that we should differentiate these two things is because rich you can see. I can see the car that you drive and the house that you live in and the clothes that you wear, the jewelry that you wear. That's all visible. Wealth, you cannot see. I cannot see your bank account. I can't see your brokerage statement. I have no idea how much wealth you have. And we go through a life with a very skewed and flawed sense of rich and wealth because we only make judgments and we only make assumptions based off of what we see. So you see someone driving a Lamborghini and you think that guy must be rich. And maybe they are rich in the sense that they can make the monthly payments on that Lamborghini, but they might have zero wealth, zero money saved up that's going to give them independence and room for error and the ability to endure a recession. They might have zero. This to me, I, I really became aware of when I was a valet. 
and getting to know some of these people who would drive in in their Bentleys and their Rolls Royces and learning after I got to know them that a lot of them were actually not that successful. They were like mediocre successful people that spent half of their income on a Rolls Royce lease payment. Mm -hmm. And that to me was just like all of my assumptions about these people was completely skewed. And on the flip side of that, some people who were legitimately very wealthy, who you would never know by their outward appearance that I could, that I could measure them by. And that to me is just like, after you've seen 20 of those extreme examples of like, I thought you were X, but you turned out to be Y, just the most extreme difference that I could think of. After I saw enough of those, it was just like, I don't believe it's, it's, there, there are so many flaws and skews that we are blinded by. And I would say particularly young men get blinded by the view of richness when actually what they deep down aspire to be is wealthy. They actually want to be wealthy because what wealth does, the unspent money that you're not spending, that you're saving and investing and you're not spending on a monthly basis, is it gives you independence and autonomy. When you have that level of money saved up, that net worth saved up where you can be autonomous, that's what wealth really is. It's like using money to give yourself a better life rather than just a tool to buy more things. I think that's what people actually aspire to. But always what they are measuring and judging in the world is just how rich people are or aren't. Mm. What are the consequences of richness being on the surface and wealth being invisible? I think there's so many people that will assume, again, I think particularly young men, who assume that the material aspects of richness, the nicer car, the bigger house, the fancier clothes, will give them a level of happiness in life. And since I think what they actually aspire to is to be wealthy and to be independent, but they don't know that yet, I think it leads to a lot of depression, actually, if, if, if they are lucky enough to have a pretty high income and they can uh, go out and buy the nice car and the big house a sense of emptiness when they actually get it, that it's not going to bring them what they, what they assumed. I just finished Will Smith's biography, which is actually incredibly good. Mm. And he made this point that when he was poor, if he was depressed, he could always say, look, I'm depressed now, but if I have more money and prettier girls, then my depression will go away. And it gave him a sense of hope. But then when he was rich, he, he, he couldn't have that hope anymore. If he was rich and depressed, he could not say, oh, if I only had more money, things would be better. There was no more hope. And so that was, I thought that was a really interesting point of, I think, what the material side of wealth can do for people. It, it, I, I th- look, I, I, I like nice cars and nice homes as much as anyone else, but I think we massively overestimate the amount of benefit that we were going to get from those things. And that, that point that I just said is like cliche. After, like, that's, that's a worn out point that a lot of people know. But I think the next step of that that does go overlooked is what we actually want is not the material. It's not that money won't make you happy. It's that money can make you happy if you use it to give yourself independence and autonomy and control over your time. Mm. That's something that I think for overwhelmingly the majority of people will bring a lasting level of contentment and a benefit to their life that is overlooked. And so it's not, it's, it's not a, a plea to live like a monk. It's not a plea to like, you know, the fire movement of retiring when you're 24 years old to live in a shack. It's not that. But I think if we can use our money with a sense of independence of, look, if I, if I have some level of savings, maybe I can, you know, take a lower paying job that I like more. Maybe I can live in an area that has a shorter commute, like whatever it is. Maybe I, I, can, I can endure a medical setback without falling into a crippling amount of debt or bankruptcy. Like all of these things just pile on your shoulders with a little bit of lack of independence and autonomy in the world, that if you can remove that by having wealth, the money that you're not spending, it's something that is like, I think so overlooked that can actually give people 
a fighting chance at using money to give yourself a better life. Yeah, well, I want to talk about wealth and happiness next, but there's a point you make in the book somewhere related to this, the, the visible and the invisible here, which is interesting because when all you see, all you can see in other people, unless you, you really know them intimately and you're, you're having a conversation about their actual financial habits, all you can see is their spending patterns, right? You can see the car they bought or the house they bought or the clothes they wear, and you can't see you know, how much they're saving or, or not saving. And because you, can, you never really see what it takes to be truly wealthy or to merely pretend to be wealthy, the only thing you can be tempted to model, really, is the, the rich side of this dichotomy. I think that's right. And I think that's why there is a lot of... I mean, here, here's one point that I think is interesting. If you ask most Americans, what was the best period economically in the history of this country? What decade was the best decade economically in the history of America? Overwhelmingly, across generations, across socioeconomic groups, people point to one decade, which is the 1950s. We remember, like across generations, we remember the 50s as the golden age of middle-class prosperity in mm -hmm. America. That's how we remember it. And I think what is amazing about that and fascinating about like, the nostalgia for the 50s is how easy it is to disprove that we were actually better off in the 50s. And by almost any economic measure that you look at, the median American household adjusted for inflation is so much better off today in the year 2022 than they were in any period during the 1950s. And it's mm. not even close. It's like, like the, the median household income adjusted for inflation is more than 2x today what it was in the 1950s. And life expectancy, access to medical care, educational attainment, like go on down the list of almost any metric you want to think about. We are better off today than the 1950s. So then the question is like, why the nostalgia? Why do we remember it as such a great period if we know that it wasn't? And I think at least one explanation for that is because a lot of it was the rise in media, particularly social media over the last 20 years, that just inflated everyone's expectations to an incredible degree. And maybe our incomes have doubled since the 1950s, but our expectations have more than doubled. Because everyone judges how well they're doing in the world relative to those around them. And when your judgment of those around you today is opening up Instagram and just seeing mm. a curated list of the, 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 you know, people taking their private jets to their private islands with their beautiful model wives. And like, that's people's expectation of what the world is. And in that world, even if your incomes have doubled over the last couple of generations, you're going to feel worse off because your expectations are so wildly inflated. And mm. I think that is, like, that's, that's probably a, a huge socioeconomic trend of the last 80 years, like since the end of World War II. It's expectations rising faster than reality on the ground, even if the reality on the ground is a lot of progress and a lot of material success, it doesn't feel like that because we have so anchored onto this false view of like what we want in life and what we aspire to in life and what is normal in life without mm. having any sort of grounding in terms of how far we've come. I mean, I think anyone, if they're really honest about it, if you said, I have a time machine, you can trade places. Do you want to live and work in the year 2022 or 1952? I think if you were honest about it, virtually no one would say 1952. Yeah, well, in defense of all of the envious people in the 21st century, one difference between 2022 and 1952 is that the level of wealth inequality really has changed, right? I mean, in 1952, again, I think this is something you discuss in your book, you know, the difference between the richest family in town and the average middle-class family 
in terms of the, the, the outward signs of wealth wasn't all that extreme. I mean, they, you know, you, they, it was the difference between driving a Chevy and driving a Cadillac. But basically, people, when you actually just look at the amount of gains in, in wealth in the society that accrued to the top 10% or the top 1%, it was not completely out of whack the way it is now. And so there really are, I mean, there's just the, you know, the, the far tale of the distribution is living in a completely different world economically than the average person in, in America is an extreme here. I, I think this is true globally, but the Gini coefficient in America is, I, I don't know what it is right now, but, you know, it, it has been creeping toward something far more extreme than, than anyone in the 1950s would recognize. That's true. I mean, I think a lot of that was kind of an echo from World War II of like how the economy was managed. There were like wage caps, you know, during the war that kind of stuck around, at least in the corporate culture in the 1950s. The top marginal tax rate was 91% in the 1950s. And there was a lot of like negatives that did come from that. But you're right that it created this period where wealth inequality was so low. And therefore, when people are measuring how well they are doing relative to those around them. Most people around you in the 50s were doing exactly as you were. People were living... So like the small house felt great because everyone else lived in a small house. And the low income felt fine because everyone else had a low income. And camping for your vacation felt like a great thing to do because that's what everybody else did. And so I, I, I think that is a lot of the nostalgia that we had, is that even mm -hmm. if we were analytically worse off, like substantially worse off, it felt better just because people were measuring their success relative to everyone else around them, and everyone else around them was doing roughly as they were. And then, so that, that started to break a little bit in the late 70s and early 80s, and then took off from there. And I think it just, it went supernova in the last 10 years with social media, to where now your definition of the people around you is this algorithmically curated list of the most shocking photos that you can find of wealth and beauty and sex. And particularly for young men and young women, I think it's so distorting on where they should be in the world and how they anchor their success in the world. And whether they, like, it's this anchor of if I'm not driving a, a BMW or a Lamborghini, and if I'm not living in a mansion in Bel Air and flying a private jet, I have not succeeded at all in the world, which is just like complete 180 from where we were in the 1950s, which is, was if I have a 1200 square foot house and I can go camping once a year, I'm successful. Okay. Well, let's talk about the relationship between wealth and happiness because it's not it's not precisely as advertised, and um, you know, people's beliefs about it are obviously quite consequential. We've already begun speaking about the variable of social comparison, which is, um, you know, I don't. I, if anyone has figured out a way to correct for it, I'm. I haven't heard of it. It's. It should be the kind of thing you could correct for because it really is irrational. You know, it's, it's the problem here is that because we derive so much of our sense of our own satisfaction by comparing our status with others, absolute changes in the, the life experience of, of everyone for the better don't register in the way that they should. So if you, you know, if you have a tide that lifts all boats, but some boats are still bigger than others, we become numb to those auspicious changes and truly just disregard progress across the board because we look at our neighbor and he's doing better than we are. This just habit of social comparison is truly insidious. 
And as you know, we've already established, the, the context of social comparison has genuinely changed because you know, there are levels of inequality now that are, are very difficult to think about. I mean, people don't have a good intuitions for the orders of magnitude here. And it's, I mean, one way to think about it, which, is, which makes it intuitive for people, is if you put orders of magnitude in terms of time, for some reason, people grok this much more easily. So, I mean, the, the difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars and a billion dollars and, you know, hundreds of billions, which is now where the richest people are, people just don't have an, a gut feeling for that. But if you tell someone that, you know, a million seconds is two weeks and a billion seconds is 32 years and a trillion seconds is 32,000 years, Right, and now we're talking about people who who are you know a quarter of the way to a trillion dollars. When you're talking about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and some of the other um, richest billionaires, when you're talking about someone who made a hundred billion dollars during COVID, the difference between that and making a hundred million dollars during COVID or a hundred thousand dollars during COVID, uh, I mean those orders of magnitude again are so extreme that it's um, it is genuinely distorting of how people view, you know, ordinary news stories or even the kind of news stories that get written. You know, if you're if you're someone who made a hundred thousand dollars during in the year 2020, when Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk made a hundred billion or thereabouts, you know, you're giving fifty dollars to charity is the kind of thing that they, you know they should be writing news stories about. Where you know, if they're going to write news stories about the richest person in society giving you know fifty million dollars to build a hospital, say, it is objectively you know a rounding error upon a rounding error for them to do that. And you know, while fifty million dollars is a lot of money you know out there in the real world, it's not an increment of money that the wealthiest people could possibly notice were it to go missing in their lives. Right. It's just it's a fascinating thing that we just don't have a sense intuitively for the scale of this of these differences. It, it also creates these weird skews where if you are a ridiculously successful entrepreneur and you are worth ten billion dollars, like a, an unfathomable amount of, amount of dynastic wealth, hmm. you could totally imagine, and I know this to be the case, that that entrepreneur might look up to Elon Musk and say, "I have not achieved one twentieth of what that guy has." And you feel like you haven't accomplished that much, even when you're worth $10 billion. It creates these enormous skews. I mean, one of the ways to point that out is like, if your net worth is $2 billion, $2 billion, crazy amount of money, you are not on the Forbes list of richest Americans. You, you don't even qualify for the list of richest Americans. You're, you are unmentionable at that point, at $2 billion. And there, there are days where the richest people have made that amount of money over the course of 45 minutes. Or, or more. I mean, when, yeah. when Elon Musk was worth $250 billion, there were days when Tesla stock would be up 7% and he would make $20 billion in a day. Yeah. Just, just, just like, it, you're right. It's just unfathomable. In fairness, we should say he also loses that much in a day exactly. when the stock yes. goes down. Yeah. And, but one, one takeaway from the Sam is I think you can easily imagine, you know, 20 years in the future or something like that. I'm, I'm making these numbers up that adjusted for inflation, the median household is earning $100,000 a year. They're earning six figures adjusted for inflation. And maybe if we're talking 50 years in the future, we've effectively cured cancer and cured heart disease. And yet people are still as unhappy as they are today. You, you can imagine yeah. like massive material gains and no increase in happiness 
because everyone's just going to reset the bar, reset their anchor, move the goalpost to that new level. I think that's kind of a cynical and sad view of the future, but I think it's almost certain to happen because it's been happening for hundreds of years. Massive, massive increase in prosperity and not that much, if any, increase in happiness to show for it. Yeah. I mean, we, we know it will happen, uh, you know, barring some radical change in human psychology because that is what we're living with now. Everyone's walking around with a smartphone in their pocket that not even the president of the United States could have gotten his hands on in you know the year 2000. You know, it's pure science fiction, and yet now it's just a, a basic necessity of life. And it's um, we reset to the new level, and again we keep comparing ourselves to others. But there is there is a connection between wealth and happiness that is um, more intrinsic, and I, I mean you you've actually indicated at least one aspect of it, which is the the freedom it gives you and the control over your own time that it gives you. I mean, you can, if you make a list of the things you really don't like to do as a wealthy person, but nevertheless still need to get done, you can delegate those tasks to others who are you know, presumably less wealthy, who will be happy to be paid to do those things for you. And that's a genuine luxury that you know, equates to happiness in a fairly direct way insofar as you care about what you do with your time. And you're most people are wise to care about what they do with their time because that really is the basis upon which your life and your life decisions play out. This is a great story from Franklin Roosevelt that I like. When, when FDR was five years old, he complained to his mother, Sarah Roosevelt, that he, uh, his life was completely dictated by rules. When he would wake up, when he had to start his chores, when he had to start his schooling, he was just like, I, like all day long, it's just rules, rules, rules. And Sarah Roosevelt said, okay, Franklin, tomorrow you can do anything you want. No structure, no rules. Do anything you want tomorrow. Your day is completely yours. And Sarah Roosevelt wrote in her diary the next day that during that day when FDR could do anything he wanted, hmm. he went back to his original routine and did everything on schedule <laughs> that he would normally do. And her takeaway was like, people don't like being told what to do. And even if you give them freedom, they might still do the exact same tasks, but they're doing it at their own will. They're not being told what to do. They're controlling their own time, even if they're doing the exact same task. Yeah. And so I, I think that's, that's a really fundamental part of psychology is that people just generally don't like being told to do something. It's not that they don't want to do it. They just don't want someone else to tell them to do it. And I think if you could use your wealth and your money to gain that independence, to gain financial freedom and flexibility, most people make a mistake here where they assume financial independence means you're going to retire. That was like the, the, the allure of the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. And I think that's a, a big mistake here is like people really innately want to be productive in the world. That, mm -hmm. is, that, that, that is a huge measure of happiness. You want to be productive to society, but you want to do it at your own, on your own terms, at your own schedule. And just waking up every morning and saying, I can do whatever the hell I want today. And most days you're going to wake up and say, I want to do the best work that I can today. I want to be productive to the world. But doing it on your own terms and your own schedule is a massive leap in happiness for most people. And actually, I, I would take that back. I would not use the word happiness because happiness is a fleeting emotion. It is it is a massive increase in contentment for people. Mm -hmm. And it's not that independence makes you happier. It's that it takes away a level of dissatisfaction. It's very different than gaining happiness. You're just taking away displeasure from your life. But I think in a way that can lead to a better life that is, that is massively overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows up in ways that aren't obvious unless you really analyze the situation or, or, or just find yourself living through these moments. I mean, one thing you point out is that 
the difference between having some wealth saved up and not is the difference between when you lose your job, you know, having to take the next one available, whether it's something you're really going to like doing or not, or being able to wait for what's truly a, a satisfying opportunity, you know, whether that's three months or six months away, you have the freedom to look for the next thing rather than grab the next handhold to keep yourself from falling into the abyss. Yeah, I think I can. I mean, I, I, I've, I've luckily never been in this position, but I think, I think one of the most stressful positions in the modern world has to be living paycheck to paycheck, which so many millions of people do, of course. But I think that level of just being one phone call away from devastation in your household, one, phone, one pink slip away from not being able to feed your family, is a crushing level of stress and anxiety that's going to wear on your health, wear, wear on your mental being. And if you can just take some little critical aspect of that off the table, you have $2,000 saved up so that if you do get laid off, let's say at that level, you can go two or three weeks without necessarily needing a paycheck to survive. Just that alone is going to have such an impact on your overall stress, even when you're working, even like when you are gainfully employed. If you are scared at every moment that every phone call from your boss is going to be it, this is going to be the one that's going to cause you to not be able to feed your children their next meal, that is just, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to go through life with any sense of happiness or joy in that situation. And if you can increase that to, oh, if, if I were to get laid off, I would be able to go three months, six months, nine months looking for the next great job that I can have rather than one that I just need out of desperation. I think that is a, a really important part of, again, like using money as a tool to actually make yourself happier rather than something that you can just buy material goods with that probably will not make you any happier. Yeah. So the, the connection between wealth and happiness is, has been studied. And again, this, Danny Kahneman did this work with um, Angus Deaton. And there's a, a famous paper here, which strangely, although I guess somewhat predictably, the lesson from it is only half assimilated by most journalists and therefore most popular culture. I mean, it's, it's what you have heard of this paper, if you haven't read it, is that they found that there really is no connection between wealth and happiness because once you get to about $75,000 a year in income, um, I don't know if this has been inflation adjusted of late, but uh, they found that you know, if you make less than $75,000 a year, well, then your well-being does increase as you begin to earn more money. And it's your, 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 you know, your well-being, as you might expect, is genuinely compromised if you're you know, quite poor. But once you get to about $75,000 a year, it plateaus and it really doesn't matter how much money you make after that. Now, you know, that was only half the story. I mean, the, the well-being was measured by a kind of moment-to-moment -moment sampling of a person's level of joy and, and freedom from stress, etc. But there was another variable here, and it's the variable of, of life satisfaction and more global judgments of, you know, how meaningful your life is and how good things are going and how, you know, how much you would change about your life. Uh, and th these are the kinds of thoughts you, you might think in, at four in the morning. And it turns out that differences in life satisfaction continue to track earnings well beyond $75,000 a year, right? And, and I think the current research shows that they basically never taper off, right? Like uh, yeah. the wealthier you get, 
the more your sense of life satisfaction grows. And I mean, there are probably many reasons for that. And what one reason is could be this this insidious role that social comparison plays in our sense of life satisfaction. And if if in fact you are the richest guy, you know, within a thousand miles, you know, when you compare yourself to others, you know, one of the things you don't have to think is, well, it would be nice to be as rich as that guy over there because you are the richest guy in sight. But there are just other elements to this, which I think would explain it. I mean, do you, do you have a an interpretation of that result? Well, let's let's use Bill Gates for an example. And I don't know him; I've never met him, so I'm at the risk of putting words in his mouth here. But I would imagine if Bill Gates were on his deathbed tomorrow, that he would look back at his life and say, "I did a great job. I created a, from scratch a company that transformed society. I became the wealthiest man in the world doing it, and I gave 95% of that money away to curing malaria and helping the world." I made a mark. I was productive. I, gave, I, I did a good job. That, in, 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 as, as you just define it, that would be satisfaction. Yeah. He, I, I would imagine he would have an immense amount of satisfaction. Happiness, though, if you were to, let's use Bill Gates again. What does everyone know that happened in the last year or two? Well, he had a very public, very ugly divorce from his longtime wife and kind of now wrapped up in the Jeffrey Epstein. Like, there's all these elements that if you were to ask Bill Gates the last two years, are you happy? My guess, and again, I'm, I'm completely making this up. My guess would be in most moments, he would say, no, the last two years were miserable. Yeah. So that, that difference between happiness and satisfaction is really key and easy to overlook. Happiness, like I said earlier, is a very fleeting emotion. I use the example of like, if I told you the funniest joke in the world, you've never heard a funniest joke, you would, you would laugh for 30 seconds and then you'd be over it. And if I told you that joke every day, you'd get sick of it, even if it was the best joke in the world. Happiness is like that as well. And therefore, I think the most that we can aim for, the best we can aim for is contentment. Can we just, and, or, 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 or just satisfaction that, that we've, done, we've, we've done a good job in life. But when people chase happiness, I think that's when, that's when people are, are, are setting themselves up for disappointment. Because no matter, no matter how funny the joke is, so to speak, it's a, it's a fleeting emotion that sticks around for just very brief moments before you revert to, to something else. And I think this is, this is, it's easy to overlook when you are aspiring to the wealth of these people, that people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos argue with their spouses, get divorced, get cancer, get in car accidents, get sued by their neighbors. All these things that on a daily basis might make, might make you have a really shitty day happens to them all the time. Very different problems that an ordinary person might have. But the idea is it's so easy to assume. Again, I think particularly for young men to assume that people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett must be just like walking orbs of happiness. And we know it's not the case. Warren Buffett's biography, which is called The Snowball, is fascinating in the sense that the most successful investor of all time, one of the richest men of all time, and someone who so many people, including myself, look up to and aspire to as a role model, his private life has not been great. His personal life yeah. has not been great. His family life has not been something that you would aspire to in the slightest. And that's, that, I think it's so easy to overlook that, the association between if you're worth X, you must be happy. Or if I were work, worth X, all of my problems would go away. And it's never the case because what people are chasing is happiness when what they should be going for, the best we can do is contentment and satisfaction. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of thinking of well-being in terms of a kind of a, a larger footprint of contentment and equanimity and peace, uh, you know, non-conflict, uh, as opposed to the, the, the more transitory, you know, hotter experiences of, 
joy and and happiness. I mean, joy is a fleeting emotion. It's not to say it's not important, and you know we don't love it. But there's a kind of a background context of just not having a problem, which is um, certainly underrated. I mean, it's not something people tend to when they when they think of living their best possible life. People tend to think about joy and fun and even you know ecstasy and they they get bored with words like contentment or peace or equanimity and yet really when you just look at when you when you study the nature of of your own psychological suffering really the the, the thing that is durable the thing that is achievable and you know truly enviable if you don't have it is contentment i mean it, and it can deepen to the point where it you know there's a blissful component to it and it's uh, born of not craving things that are not here in this moment, right? And we'll, and we'll talk about you know, what, what's required to do that and the ways in which we, we naturally move the goalposts in life. And we, you know, we, you know, each of us is now surrounded, if we're not in a, in a stark experience of poverty and complication, each of us is now surrounded with everything we once wanted. Right, everything you have, everything you're wearing, everything you're surrounded by is something you put in place because you wanted it and you worked for it, and now you have it, and now you want other things, right? And and it's easy to lose sight of how much you have to be grateful for in this moment when you're busy wanting you know, something in the next. Is it too much to oversimplify, like in the meditation context that? In order to improve your mental well-being through meditation, it's obviously not to flood yourself with happy thoughts. It's almost the opposite. It's to like completely rid your mind of of any kind of internal chatter and just wiping out wiping the slate clean, so to speak. Is that? I mean, is that that's kind of the core of meditation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's the identification with the chatter, right? I mean, it's not that you're going to stop thoughts from arising, but you can notice them as just you know mere appearances in consciousness and the difference between being identified with the next thought and just noticing it is enormous given that the the mediocre and even lacerating character of most of our thoughts right i mean most people are telling themselves a story of dissatisfaction most of the time and even the story of satisfaction is is often just engineering further dissatisfaction, right? I mean, to take this point of social comparison we were just talking about, many people spend a lot of time comparing themselves unfavorably to others, and that's painful. But comparing yourself favorably to others also kind of sucks, right? I mean, just like, what kind of relationship do you have with your friends when you're busy thinking that you're better than they are or smarter than they are or better looking than they are or richer than they are? And finding your satisfaction there, right? I mean, that is a impoverished basis for psychological well-being. And so, yeah, it, it just turns out that most of what we think is pretty lousy and unnecessary when it, when we're talking about what is required moment to moment to feel good in our own skin. And so, meditation is a way of just noticing all of that, noticing the mechanics of that, and being in the present in a way that is genuinely a basis for satisfaction and contentment. Yeah. My wife made this point the other day and she said this tongue in cheek, but I think there's some truth to it. She she joked that she's happier 
when the economy is in recession, which I have to point out is like, you, you don't, that's, that's, that's being really insensitive to people's suffering. Of course, she was right. joking when she said this, yeah. but her point was she's happier when the economy is in recession because the keeping up with the Joneses effect falls away. And there's so much less social pressure to keep up with your neighbors, keep up with your friends who are also spending tons of money during the boom, that there's just hmm. so much less pressure during the bus that actually leads to a, actually a, a level of happiness. And I thought that was actually pretty insightful and just gets to the point of social comparison and your whole happiness and how much value you get out of anything. It's not how well you're doing, it's how well you're doing relative to everyone else that actually makes the biggest difference. Yeah, I think there, there is a connection between wealth and life satisfaction, you know, as demonstrated by Deaton and Kahneman's study. And I think, I think it's based on a, just a, a ridiculous number of of questionnaires. I mean, I think hundreds of thousands of people responded to these questionnaires in, in a recent update. And I don't think we should trivialize that because I think people, people who are not wealthy or who are you know, barely wealthy or you know, spending a lot of their time struggling to be wealthy, I think they're available to the, the insight that much of this is a mirage, right? You're moving yeah. the goalposts. You're, you've got this hedonic treadmill that you're on. You're, you're habituating to each new thing you buy. You know, every time you buy a new piece of clothing or a new watch or whatever it is that you were fixated on, you know, you love it for a little while and then you habituate to it and you overlook it and then you're on to the next thing. And so I think people can be, if they're not already sensitive to that process, they can be made sensitive to it. But I think people also know that there's another side to this, which where wealth actually does open the door to satisfactions that are not as trivial and, and evanescent as all that. And I mean, so it, you know, it's possible to, to really like nice things and to draw real satisfaction from the kinds of things that do require a fair amount of money to get in proximity to. There are hobbies that, you know, cost a, a lot of money, right? Well, you know, whether that's, you know, skiing or sailing or whatever it is. I mean, if, if you get really into boats, right? If being on the, on the ocean is your whole thing, well then, you know, I, I can imagine, there's just, I, I, I know very little about boats, but I can imagine there's a certain level of wealth required to do that in a way that's genuinely satisfying. And once you're able to do that, it would be wrong to say, well, that the wealth didn't matter because you really love what you're doing over there. And I, mean, I can say in my own case, one really big upgrade in my life that required a fair amount of wealth is the difference between living someplace where you have a view of nothing and living someplace where you have a beautiful view of, you know, you, you mm -hmm. see, you know, there's lots of sky, there are lots of trees, you know, you look out the window and there's, you know, it's beautiful, you know, but, but some people don't, you know, like, you know, my wife you know, really doesn't care about views in, in the way that, that I do, but like, I literally never habituate to a nice view. I mean, a nice view is just a continuous source of happiness for me. That's cool. And yeah. it actually just, it, it does, I mean, in, in most, I mean, obviously you can find a nice view in a pretty affordable way, you know, if you're willing to move almost anywhere. But, you know, in the same city or in the same town, if you're, you know, the, the variable of having a good view versus a bad view is a, is a variable that requires some considerable amount of money especially in a big city. That's one way in which I would never be able to say that a change in, in the increment of wealth 
really didn't matter on a day-to-day basis because it, it, it yeah. just it honestly does. Sure. Yeah. I think one one other area where it, it absolutely does that's easy to for a lot of people to overlook is just access to quality healthcare. And not only the mm-hmm. access of the actual healthcare, but the ability to say, I need to take the next six months off of work to deal with my health. Yeah. That that you can do at one income level and it's completely out of the question at another is just, you know, a, a massive increase in your life satisfaction and happiness that is is different depending on how much income you make. And when you think about the stress, I mean, to achieve a certain level of wealth where the price of things is not a you know, daily or even hourly source of stress, when you get to a level where the normal transactions that you repeat again and again and again in your life are not at an increment of money where the difference between the more expensive and the less expensive option is really going to matter, right? Like if right. you're having to constantly notice what, what a coffee costs, that's a, a continuous source of stress and dissatisfaction that simply goes away once you have a little more money. I also think there's another end of this that's almost the opposite. You know, I, I completely agree with what you just said, but there is also another group of people who become rich because they are so obsessed with money. That's what makes them rich. And also even then when they are rich, they continue to obsess about money. They continue to obsess about the cost of groceries and the cost of coffee. And they, can, they, and they almost like that game of obsessing over every penny. And the same trait that made them wealthy sticks around with them. But I completely agree that like, for most people, you're going to gain happiness from money if it becomes something that's just like oxygen. It's key to life, but you don't think about it. It's just always mm-hmm. there in abundant quantities. It's just, it's, you just don't have to think about it ever. I think that's kind of what people want. They, 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 they want to become wealthy. And, and this falls into independence where you don't even have to think about it anymore. You can just buy what you want, what you need, and it's not even a thought. But the irony of it is how many people become wealthy because of the obsession. And the obsession not only does not go away, it grows as they become wealthier. Mm-hmm. And this is true for a lot of people who made their money in finance. They became wealthy because they are, uh, they are addicted to the spreadsheet. They're addicted to the numbers, adding everything up, becoming just keenly aware of every cent that they spend. And that sticks around with them in a way that I, I, I've seen this happen, again, particularly people that made their money in finance, that I think as their wealth grows, it becomes more of a burden to manage it and deal with it. And also, um, one other aspect of this is the, the amount of when, when someone comes into a lot of wealth and, and gains a lot of wealth through their own hard work, a lot, of it, a lot of times they become paranoid and concerned about losing it. And that adds a level of stress that they never imagined as well. That if you don't have anything to lose, you don't worry about losing it. There's nothing to lose. Whereas if you sell your company for $100 million, amazing, that's great. But now you're paranoid about what you're going to do with that money and afraid every day of losing it, particularly because that money is now synonymous with your value in, in life of what you've accomplished in life. And if you lose that, then you've given up the hard work that you had. And I, I think that's, that's easy to overlook too for these people that come into money without, without realizing what it's going to do to them. Yeah, you, you bring up another point, which is often not noticed, which is, I think this is probably a genuine change in our era, which is that it used to be that that wealth would translate into leisure for, you know, most of, certainly most of the wealthy people. These are in eras where many of these people inherited their wealth rather than earned it. So, you know, that's probably not surprising. But in the current context, Wealthy people tend to work more on average than people who are less wealthy. I mean, it's just like the work does not stop. And in some cases, 
it's the you know the happiest condition where their their work is simply what they would want to do anyway if they if they didn't have to worry about money because now they don't have to worry about money and it's what they're doing that makes them happy but in many cases it's as you just described people don't know what else to do and they're just obsessed on you know, the the game of making money is the only game they they understand and they've they've moved the goalposts like anyone else and the the guy who's got 10 billion dollars is looking at Jeff Bezos and feeling poor, and they they keep grinding away uh, at the same millstone. Yeah, I mean, there's this, I mean, there's a quote from Bill Gates, a story from Bill Gates, where he says, I think it was over 17 years he didn't take a single day off, worked seven days a week for 17 years, and the average one of those days he would he would stumble home at midnight and collapse on the couch and go back to work again at 6 a.m. the next morning. And he did that seven days a week for 17 years. That's how you become the richest person in the world and build a company like that. Elon Musk was the same recently in 2018 when Tesla was on the verge of bankruptcy. He was sleeping in conference rooms for nights on end. And he talked about what that did to his personal life and his relationship with his family during the time. And I, I, that's, there's this great point from Naval who, who writes something along the lines of, whenever you admire someone, you can't take bits and pieces of their life and say, oh, if I had this person's wealth and this person's looks and this person's intelligence, and meld it together like that. You have to, if, if you really want to be someone else and aspire to be someone else, you have to take the whole person. You want Bill Gates' wealth and Bill Gates' house and Bill Gates' plane. You also have to take his working seven days a week for 17 years and the stress that that put on him and his family and his lack of social life, et cetera, et cetera. You have to take that as well. And that is easy. I think that this is where people really go astray with role models. It's mm-hmm. true too that I bet LeBron James, Michael Jordan have a daily life, a daily routine that I would never in a million years want to live that would make me severely unhappy. Even if I would seemingly love their wealth, their fame, their admiration, whatever it might be. The reason that they got to there is because they have all these other aspects of their life that suck that I would never want to be a part of. And that, again, that, that's usually hidden. Like if you search Bill Gates, you find pictures of his house and pictures of his plane. You, you're really going to see pictures of him grinding at midnight over a spreadsheet about whether to hire this person, fire this person, do this business deal, whatever it might be. But a lot of the stories that do come out of that during the 1990s when he was really building Microsoft, incredible levels of stress and uncertainty. And now as we look back, we know how the story ends. It ends with Microsoft being ridiculously successful and he became the richest man in the world. But there are all these periods along the way where none of that was certain. And none of that was even was, was foreseeable. And it could have gone a different way at a million different points. And the stress that that caused him was off the charts. And we never see that. It's all hidden from view. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the, the practicalities here. How do you think about saving and investing? I think the, the biggest thing with savings is that most people, when they think about savings, save for a specific event. So they say, I'm saving for a down payment on a house. I'm saving for a new car. I'm saving for a vacation, which is all great. That's all fine. But back to what you and I were talking about earlier in terms of how the biggest risk is what you don't see coming and the element of surprise. To me, the most important reason to save is for something that I have no idea of what's going to happen. It's not earmarked for anything in particular. I'm saving for a life that is constantly surprising me and everyone else. And then so I, I personally, my, my household finances for, for my wife and I, we have quite a bit of cash as a percentage of our net worth. And for the people who know the details of our finances, these friends and advisors that we've worked with that have kind of a, 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 an open view to our net worth, hmm. let them will say like, why do you have so much? Like, what are you saving for? Why do you have all this cash? And my answer is always 
I don't know what I'm saving for. It might be a medical illness. It might be that my career comes crashing down for whatever reason. It might be that we're about to hit Great Depression 2.0. You can come, you use your imagination. Like life is full of surprises for everyone, both at the macro level and the personal level. So I think that's what a lot, like A, where people get wrong with, with savings is that they feel they need a, a reason to save. And I think, think you don't. You should just save for saving's sake, save for surprises. With investing, my personal philosophy, and I would preempt this by saying, everyone invests, there, there's a million ways to invest properly. You have to just figure out what works for your personality. And just because I invest this way, I'm not saying that you or anyone else should either. It's just you, people have to find what works for their goals, their, their personality. For me, my big uh, view on investing is if you understand how compounding works, compound interest is returns to the power of time. So time is the exponent. Time does the heavy lifting. That's what really drives the equation here of how well you're going to do. It's not necessarily the returns that you earn. It's how long you can earn those returns for. And it's not intuitive, but the, the, the most obvious secret in investing is that if you can earn average returns for an above average period of time, that's going to lead to ridiculous success. So I'm a passive investor. I invest in Vanguard index funds that are so boring and basic, and it's not exciting in the slightest. But the reason I do that is because if I can use all of my energy and attention and skill in just increasing the amount of time that I am investing for and focusing on endurance so that I can endure and survive the next recession, the next layoff, whatever it might be, I just want to earn average returns for 50 years if I can. And if I can do that, if I can earn average returns for half a century, I think I will achieve every financial goal that I have and then some. And by the way, I'll probably end up in the top literally one or 2% of all investors if I just earn average returns for a way above average period of time. And that's, again, that's not intuitive. Most investors want to say, what are the highest returns I can, that I can earn? And in the equation of returns to the power of time, they're focusing on that lower number. They're not focusing on the exponent. And so I just, I just try to flip that around and say, I focus overwhelmingly on endurance to make sure that I can survive the next big bear market, the next big recession, the next depression if it happens during our lifetime. And I just want to stay in the game. Charlie Munger has this great quote where he says, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. And mm -hmm. I think that like, that's really the key to investing success. Now, I'm not one of the passive investing zealots who says, no one can outperform the market, don't even try. There are a lot of those people who exist, but I'm, I'm not one of them. But I, could, I, I think there are really smart people who have and will continue to beat the market and outperform the market. But it should be something that is extremely hard to do, and it is. So all the stats that you see about 95% of active managers can't beat the S&P 500 index. They fail to beat it. That's usually used as a statistic of like, that shows that the industry has failed. And I don't think that's the case. I, I just think whenever you see that statistic, you're like, yeah, of course it should be like that. Of course it should be hard to beat the market. And what world do people expect to live in where they think that everyone who tries to beat the market can do it? That world's never going to exist. Right. And like, if we, if you look like what percentage of college basketball players join the NBA. I have no idea what it is, but it's probably in the single digit percentage points. If that, it's yeah. a very low percentage point. No one would look at that and say college basketball is a scam. It doesn't work. They would look at that and say, yeah, it's, 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 of course it's hard to get into the NBA. And I view active management in that same light. So I, I'm not against it. I just want to be as simple as I can on the return side of the equation so that I can focus all my energy on the, the time exponent side of compounding. Yeah, you, you analyze the career of uh, Warren Buffett, which is a, uh, probably the greatest example of the power of compounding. I don't know if you have those actual figures committed to memory, but describe just how 
the, the time course over which he acquired all of his wealth and you know how things would have looked had he started a little bit later and, and retired a little bit earlier, etc. The two most salient data points of Warren Buffett's success is that he started investing pretty much full-time when he was 11 years old, and he continues to invest full-time when he's 92 years old today. And those are the most important parts because if you look at the trajectory of, the trajectory of Warren Buffett's life, 99% of his net worth was accumulated after his 50th birthday, and 98% was accumulated after his 65th birthday. And those stats don't even account for the fact that he's given away so much money over time. Mm. If you were to factor that in, it's literally 99.9% of his, of his worth, of his net worth, came after his 50th birthday, it was accumulated after his 50th birthday. And that's really important because if you were to think about an alternative world where Warren Buffett retired at age 60, like a, like a normal person might, you would have never heard of him. If you can imagine a world where Warren Buffett started investing at age 30, like a normal person might, you would have never heard of him. He never would have accumulated literally 1% of what he has. And everyone in the industry, when they're trying to explain, how did Warren Buffett do it? They go into all this detail about how he thinks about market cycles and business models and management teams and valuations, which are all really important topics, of course. But it, like literally 99% of, 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 the, of the success is just the amount of time he's been doing it for. And so is Warren Buffett a good investor? Like, yes, of, of course he's a great investor. Like, uh, yes, of course he is. But the whole secret is that he's been a good investor for 80 years. That's the, again, that's the exponent in the equation yeah. that makes all the difference in the world. It's just so easy to overlook that when we are so attracted to the complex and something that can be modeled and can be explained in a 300-page book without just saying like, look, the reason he's successful is because he's been doing it for a long time. And that's it. That's the end of story. It's just so easy to overlook that point. Yeah. Again, this is a, something for which we have almost no intuitions, the, the effect of compounding year over year. I mean, if you're, if, if you're Warren Buffett and you're making on average a 20% return, uh, which is certainly a, a good return uh, year after year, the difference between retiring at 60 and retiring at 90 is just not intuitive. And it's, again, yeah, it's 99% of his, of his billions came late. But It's always this just this point of like how counterintuitive compounding is. I was just yesterday watching this video uh, with a scientist named, named Richard Hamming who was giving a lecture, this video I was watching on YouTube, is a lecture that he gave at the US Naval Academy in 1995. And he was talking about that back in the 1960s when he was at Bell Labs, he would have never fathomed that by the 1990s, they would be building chips that had a million transistors on them, a million transistors on a chip. He just said, that was just been unfathomable what we have today. And I laughed when watching this talk from 1995, because today in 2022, there are chips that have trillions of transistors on them. Mm. We've gone up so many orders of magnitude since he was shocked out of his mind. It's just like whenever something compounds, whether it's you know, the productivity of chips or wealth or not, it's never intuitive. Even if you are a smart, analytically minded person, it's never intuitive to think like where, where things can go. Mm. It's the same with like data storage for, in, in, in computers. Like it was not that long ago that a storage device that had 100 megabytes was like a giant, that was a giant storage device. And now you can get, you know, terabyte hard drives for not that much money. It's just like when, 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 whenever something increases exponentially and has the possibility of doing it for years or decades, you are always going to be shocked with the outcome. There's almost no exception to that. Yeah, I think this translates to some degree to 
other questions of well-being and contentment when you just when you imagine what it would what it would mean to steadily make a 2% or 5% or 10% improvement in one's life just by, you know, securing ground and being disciplined enough not to lose that ground, right? You know, building new habits that are, are healthier habits that, you know, I mean, these are, these are things that are harder to quantify, but it's just, I mean, if you look at everything in your life that is a pain point or possible pain point, you know, you know we're now talking about wealth as one, but I mean, all of this relates, you know, to fitness and health and, you know, habits of, you know, in your relationships, all, everything that, that affects your quality of life. You just imagine making incremental gains that you decline to lose, uh, which is to say you get better and better at taking your own advice across all these dimensions year after year. There's a compounding effect there, which again is, is very hard to appreciate when you're simply making one incremental change today. And it's also hard to appreciate when it, when it is easily quantified you know, with building wealth. I mean, it's just not clear that leaving your money in the market, even when things are swinging around, rather than the, the difference between just leaving it there and panicking and selling when, you know, d- during a low spot, the implications of doing that again and again over time is not intuitively obvious when you're doing it once today because you're panicking. One other part of this is that a, a general truism is that good news happens very slow and bad news happens very quickly. Yeah. You know, there's, there's very few overnight miracles, but there are a lot of overnight tragedies. And if you look at something like the improvement in heart disease mortality over the last 70 years, if, if you compare heart disease deaths today to what it was in the 1950s or 60s, we have made just astounding improvement. You are like 90% less likely to die from a heart attack today than you were in the 50s and 60s. But that's like most people don't know that because the improvement over the last 70 years has been like 2% per year. In any given year, it's unmentionable. It's not going to make the headlines. But if you look at what's happened over 70 years, it's astounding the progress that we've made. But the bad news tends to be 9-11, COVID, Pearl Harbor, these things that happen literally in one second, just like, boom, here you yeah. go, the world's changed forever. And I think because of that, it's so easy to overlook how powerful compounding can be on the upside, because we are so attracted to the bad news that you can't look away from without realizing that even a small incremental improvement, if you can keep it going, for like, forget 50 years, if you can keep it going for five or 10 years, you can make an astounding improvement over time. Yeah. And, th- and these are both positive and negative changes, right? So for instance, stopping smoking, right? You know, it's like it, if you're a smoker and, you know, you know you should stop, but it's a hassle, you, you like smoking, you're addicted to nicotine, you know, you, you understand the pain of, of not having a cigarette today. Uh, and that's what's salient. But, you know, there's, there's a compounding effect there. If you can actually stop smoking and then are no longer smoking every day thereafter, it, again, it's not salient now how much that's going to matter over the course of decades. But right. if we know anything about can... heart disease and lung disease and you know every other thing that smoking affects, talk about low-hanging fruit in terms of one's physical well-being. It's the simplest change one could make. If one is a smoker, to simply stop smoking is you know there there, there are few only a few other things you can do to make such a a massive change in your health over time. And that's an interesting point that you bring up 
this week because the FDA is effectively trying to institute a modern prohibition on nicotine. We'll see how successful it is. Mm -hmm. But just today that we're recording this, they pulled Juul vaping devices off the market. Mm -hmm. And I think they're trying to make, uh, they're trying to regulate the level of nicotine in cigarettes to effectively make it so they are more or less nicotine free. Mm -hmm. Who knows how successful they'll be. But you're right that like the the littlest thing that I think kills 400,000 Americans a year could make such a huge difference. There's an interesting connection between saving and investing that you make uh, in the book, which is, again, counterintuitive, and uh, it, it attracts almost no interest, as far as I can tell. I mean, you know, I think, you know, this is the first time I've ever seen this point made, I think, which is, you know, there, there's, there are vast amounts of effort expended on trying to achieve one or two percent better returns in a comparatively, you know, risk-free way while investing. And yet, when you think of what it, how easy it would be to simply save 1% or 2% more of what you earn, if you are focused on doing that, it's, you know, that's, that's entirely under a person's control. And it's almost, it's almost never thought about. Yeah, I mean, there, I, think, I think a lot of people, particularly in the Western world, particularly in like upper middle class America, have a huge amount of lifestyle bloat. That is just a keeping up with the Joneses spending on the bigger house, the nicer car, the fancier vacations. And the point that I made that you, that you pointed out was like, there is so much effort, literally hundreds of billions of dollars goes into the effort of trying to earn higher market returns. How can I beat the market? And by little amounts, if you can outperform the market by one percentage points per year, you are a freaking hero. You will be on Mount Rushmore if you can do that over the course of your lifetime, the Mount Rushmore of, of professional investors. If you can beat it by one percentage point per year, that's amazing. But if you think for the average person, like, do they have one or two or five or 10 percentage points of lifestyle bloat in their lifestyle that they, they could live in a more modest house? They could drive the Honda instead of the BMW. They could go on a more of a local vacation than, than flying to Bali. Like, there's all these things where it's like, again, I'm not saying live a Spartan life, live like a monk, but it is way more feasible to reduce your lifestyle expenditures by a percentage point than it is to increase your investing turns by a percentage point. The first is like almost entirely possible for virtually everyone listening to this, that you could reduce your lifestyle by 1%. The latter is almost impossible to everyone listening to this, that you can improve your investing returns by 1%. It's like the, the, the difference between them is that stark. It's that mm. black and white. And I, I just think there is so much effort on the former or on, on, on the latter. There's so much effort on trying to increase your investing returns and almost no effort on the latter, which is like, can you just keep your expectations in check? Can you become a little bit more humble and less egotistical in, in, your, in, your, in your spending? And I, I think that it's just such an area for improvement for people. Now, I have over time increased my, my lifestyle. I live in a larger house, drive a nicer car than I did 10 years ago. So I'm not saying just anchor yourself to when you are in poverty and stay there forever. That's not the point. But I just think it's, there's such a level of improvement for people that goes overlooked. And I think if there is a, an area of our finances that I'm proud of that my wife and I have done a good job on, it's keeping our lifestyle in check below the rate of our income growth. It's not that it hasn't grown at all, but our lifestyle has grown at a slower rate than our income. So as our income has gone up, like the huge majority of it has accrued to savings and wealth and independence and not necessarily just keeping up with the Joneses. So even if we are passive investors and we're earning an average investing return, 
I think we are earning an above average like lifestyle return just because we've been able to keep our lifestyle below our rate of income growth. Hmm. How, how do you think about the difference between what is rational and what is reasonable? To me, the, the idea was, it seems so intuitive and people say it all the time, like you want to be rational. How can I make a rational decision? Or the opposite, you're not being rational. You're being irrational and therefore you should stop doing it. And I think in, inherent in that, which is like an idea that's never questioned, but inherent in that is that people are machines and they are spreadsheets and that they can just go through life adding up the numbers in the spreadsheet and doing what the spreadsheet tells them to do. And I think that is, is wrong. And there's so much evidence that we are not machines, that we are hormonal, emotional, imperfect people who have a very limited view of how the world works, who are blinded by uncertainty. And we are, we, we are just not rational machines. We are irrational people through and through, full stop. And if you accept that then, then rather than aiming to be rational with your money, I think the best you can do is aim to be reasonable. If you can just be pretty reasonable with your money, I think it's the best that we can do. And a lot of people, I think virtually everyone has some form of skeleton in their financial closet, something that they do with their money that is not rational, that they might be embarrassed of, that they might hide from their friends, might hide from their spouse because it's not a rational thing to do. And I think if you just give yourself the permission to say, look, I'm, I'm not a perfect person. I'm an irrational person. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very emotional person. And therefore, there are things I do with my money that I cannot explain on a spreadsheet, but it works for my personality. It's pretty reasonable. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. The example that I gave in the book was, we don't have a mortgage on our house, which is the worst financial decision that we've ever made. Because as recently as two years ago, you could have gotten a 30-year fixed rate mortgage for two and a half percent, the lowest, and that's tax deductible. And it's like, it's fixed forever. It's like the best thing you could possibly do is to lock in that low rate mortgage. And we intentionally did not. We don't have a mortgage. And it's the worst financial decision we've ever made, but it's the best money decision we've ever made mm. because it gives me a level of independence and comfort and security, particularly as we have young kids and sleeping well at night, knowing that this is my house. It's not the bank's house. No one can take it away from me, no matter what happens. I love that feeling, even if I can't explain it on a spreadsheet. And there've been so many people who I explained that to. I wrote about that in the book. People have emailed me and said, look, I kind of see where you're coming from, but like, walk me through the math on why you did this. And I'm like, no, 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 this is not math. There's no, mm -hmm. if I try to explain this with math, I'm going to fail. The math does not make any sense. It's irrational. But I'm not a rational person. I'm an emotional person. And I think this is a reasonable thing to do with my money. And therefore, it's, it's the right thing to do. Once you give yourself permission to be just reasonable with money, I think there's a lot of things you can do with your money that make a lot of sense, even if they're not rational. One other quick example I'll give on this is there's a very well-documented home bias in investing where people who live in America only own American stocks and people who live in Germany only own German stocks, et cetera, et cetera. And it's often viewed as a bias. It's not rational to think that the best companies that you should own are the ones that are located closest to your house. That doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. But I think it's very reasonable to have that home bias if investing in companies that you are familiar with because you drive past them every day, if that helps you take the leap of faith of investing your life savings for the next 30 or 40 years, then it's a very reasonable thing to do, even if it's not rational. You can't explain it in a spreadsheet. So I think there's lots of examples like that. I'll give you one more very stark example, and I mm. promise to wrap this up, but I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating example. I have a friend who is fairly successful now, but he grew up in abject poverty, homeless poverty. And he told a story about uh, when he was growing up, he remembers a time when his refrigerator was empty. When he was a child, his refrigerator was empty and his mom had $3 in her pocket. And $3 is not going to fill the refrigerator. It's not going to make a dent in feeding the family. But $3 will buy you 
three lottery tickets that might give you the potential to fill the refrigerator. And his point was, if you looked at my mom with starving children and $3 in the bank, going out and buying lottery tickets, you would say, that is not rational at all. You are crazy. You are being so reckless with your money. Your kids can't eat and you're buying scratcher tickets. But from her, from her perspective, it was actually a pretty reasonable thing to do because it was the only thing in her life that would give her a fighting chance about mm. maybe being able to fill the refrigerator. I think there's so many examples like that. Yeah, it strikes me there's an example closer to home here where you've just described the rationality of passive investing in the stock market because we know that something like 95% of active trading just simply fails to equal the average gains in the market, which is to say if you're picking individual stocks in publicly traded companies, you're very likely, unless you imagine you have some access to inside information uh, that others don't have, you're very likely going to perform worse than you would if you just bought an index fund and never looked back. But is there a case for the reasonableness of actively trading at least some amount of your portfolio simply because you have made other you know, psychological calculations and concessions, which is you know, you're, you're the kind of person who likes the Vegas-like aspect of it. I mean, you're, you're essentially you're aware that you're paying some price or you're, li- you're likely to pay some price for your, the dopamine you get from doing this, or you're someone who will feel so much pain on failing to get the, the outsized returns of picking the right company that you're, you want to spend some amount of your investable dollars taking outside risks by picking companies. I mean, is there room for that, or do you do you feel like it's just generally unwise to be buying individual stocks, given what we know about the track records of most people doing that? I think there's two cases for active investing. One is is you are really going to devote a significant portion of your life to studying and researching and analyzing markets, whether you're a professional or amateur. You're going to devote a lot of time and energy to figuring this out. That's one case. The second case is you think it's just intellectually appealing and it's scratching an itch, maybe some sort of gambling itch, that if you did not scratch that itch, you would be completely dissatisfied with investing. And I think there is, I think that the best financial advisors that I know, when a client comes to them and they clearly have a, a gambling impulse, the financial advisor will say, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put 90% of your money in passive long-term investments. And then I'm going to let you take 10% and gamble your brains out with it. You can buy your penny stocks, short stock, whatever you want to do go scratch that itch. And the reason that they do that is because they know that if that financial advisor said, hey, Mr. Client, I'm going to put you 100% in the good passive long-term investments, that client that has a gambling mentality is going to say, this is boring. I'm going to leave. And they're going to go gamble with 100% of their money. Hmm. If you can scratch an itch with 10%, again, even that's not, that's not rational to think like, oh, let's take 10% of your money and gamble it away. That's not a rational thing to do. But if by doing that, it lets you keep the majority of your money invested for the long term because you're scratching your itch somewhere else. It's a totally reasonable thing for people to do. Those are, I think, are the two scenarios in which active investing makes sense. It's either, it's like the two ends of the spectrum. Either devote your life to doing it right or admit that you need to scratch an itch and you know that you're probably not going to get it right, but it's intellectually appealing and you love trading and following markets, which I do too. Hey, like, like by the way, I'm a long-term passive investor. I buy every month. I never sell, but I am fascinated with markets. So I check markets many times a day. I check my accounts several times a day. 
I read financial news all day long because I think it's fascinating. I think the, the sociology of markets is just an amazing thing to witness, even if I'm not actively participating on a daily basis in trading. Well, then why don't you fall into that first bin of, given that you're devoting so much of your time to it and you find it so interesting, why not be the person who's trying to beat the market and deeply researching companies, et cetera, and actively trading? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. One of the reasons why it was unappealing to me is that there, it, is, it is possible, if not likely, I would say, that you could be a successful active investor and do that for 10 or 20 years and still not know whether your success was due to luck. And I think that would, have, that would gnaw at me to no degree. Like not, like not only are the odds stacked against you that you will be successful, but if you're successful, you don't know whether it's luck or not. And there are, without a question, without any question, there are very successful active investors, some of whom are billionaires, whose success is owed almost entirely to luck. Now, we we don't know who those investors are, but if you asked, okay, if you said there's 10 million active investors in the world, will a handful of them become ultra successful by luck alone? The answer is, of, of course, it's yes. But we never want to admit who those are. And those people don't want to look in the mirror and admit that it was them because that's a really uncomfortable thing to to swallow. So I, I never wanted to have a career where I probably wouldn't be successful. And if I was, I wouldn't even know if it was because of what I did or not. Hmm. That, that was one aspect of it. The other, like maybe, I, maybe just trying to be introspective here, I have a somewhat lower risk tolerance. And I feel like the, the investing, that the individual decisions that I could make would be something that I would not be very good at. But being patient is something that I know I would be good at. And, and focusing on endurance, like I know I can do that well. Maybe I don't have confidence in myself that I could be a successful stock picker, but I have total confidence in myself that I can be a long-term investor. And therefore, if I can be an average investor for a long time, that just seems like it, it would have the highest odds of success for me. And maybe a third answer is I'm much more aware, like I, I really don't have that much interest in where is the stock market going to go next? What are the next big industries? Where's the economy? I just don't think it's very interesting to me. I like, I, I like watching it to me, but really what, what I like and I'm very interested in is what is going on inside of people's heads when they are making those financial decisions. And that's why I like following markets. I love just like the daily explanations that people give about why is the market doing this and why is it doing that and like how people justify their own decisions. That part I, th- I think is fascinating, even if, I'm not, even if I don't really aspire to be an active participant in making those, those forecasts and those judgments. Yeah, I mean, the, the market is an interesting reflection of Really, it's just expectation. I mean, to invest in the market is to form a set of beliefs about what other people believe the market will do. You know, it's, a, it's just this hall of mirrors. It's, it's a, you're forming a set of beliefs about what other people believe other people believe that other people believe what the market, I mean, it, it sort of never ends, right? And, and you're just, so you're betting on the psychology of other people in order to pick Certainly, if you're trying to time the market in any way, you're not really betting on the actual fundamentals of any of these companies you could be buying, buying stock for. It's you're, you're betting on what other people think is going to happen with those companies. And here's the most extreme example of that. You mentioned earlier that it's hard to beat the market unless you have inside information. But the, actual, the, the truth of it is most of the studies show that even people who are illegally trading with inside information, they still lose money. Because even mm-hmm. if you know what the data is going to be and you have that information before everyone else, you don't know how other investors are going to react to it. And there was a hedge fund that uh, I think it was around 2010, 
a hedge fund called Galleon. The guy's name who ran it was Raj Rajaratnam. Yeah. He went to jail for insider trading. He spent like a decade in prison for insider trading. And the, the irony about all this is that during his insider trading, he didn't even make any money doing it. He mm -hmm. lost money on his insider trades, but the law does not distinguish between profitable insider trading and unprofitable. If you, if you, if you trade on insider information, that's against the law. But most of the people who do this don't even make money doing it because again, they might have the data, but they have no clue how other investors are going to react to that data. So how do you think about risk and luck here? Both of those topics have come up, but um, they seem important to focus on. What, what, what do you, um, how, do, how does that shape your sense of what is reasonable to do or not do in, in this space? Well, to me, the, it was the idea that risk and luck are the exact same idea, just in opposite directions. They're the same, it's, it's, it's the opposite side of the same coin. Hmm. That the, the definition of risk is that there are things in the world that can happen that are outside of your control, that can have a bigger impact on outcomes than anything you can do yourself. That's what risk is. And that's also the exact same definition of luck. There are things that can happen in the world that are outside of your control that have a bigger impact on outcomes than anything you do intentionally. That's the definition of risk and luck. And the point that I wanted to make was we are so keenly aware of risk in the financial world. And we talk about risk-adjusted returns. We hire risk man, like being a risk manager is a, is a career on Wall Street. We talk about you know, the risk in the stock market, the risk in the economy. We're so keenly aware of risk. And we almost never talk about luck, even though it's the exact same thing, just in the other direction. And because of that, I think we are largely blind to luck. Because if I were to say, Sam, all of your success is due to luck, that makes me look jealous. By the way, it's, it's not. I'm just saying this hypothetically. But that makes me look bitter and jealous. Actually, you, you, don't know my, look, you don't know my thoughts about, on free will here. I, I, would, I would happily accept that all of my success is due to luck. Maybe, uh, maybe, okay, but better, that, that's, that's a, that's that's a larger conversation. Yeah. And, but I, I, I was, I was going to follow up by saying, if I looked in the mirror and said, all of my success is due to luck, that kind of hurts too. I don't necessarily want to accept that. Hmm. And because of that, I think we systematically underestimate the role of luck in life. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just you and I are white American males born in the 20th century, like that, that, that is a massive element of luck that's completely outside of our control. Yeah. And it's completely foolish to think that if we were born in a, a different situation, in a different country, in a different era, in a different whatever, that we would be in the same position that we are right now. So I think it's, it's very easy to overlook that. The other element of this is that particularly in areas of extreme success, the line between bold and reckless is very thin and usually only know it in hindsight. And the skills that the exact same skills and behaviors that made some people ridiculously successful easily could have made them very unsuccessful or ended up in jail. I use the example in the book that if you look at the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was one of the richest men of all time, the most successful businessman of all time, he made, it's not an exaggeration to say that he made most of his success because he just gave the middle finger to the law. And while all of his competitors were following the law, he just said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to break every law that governs railroads and shipping in the United States, and I'm just going to run over people and get it done. And that was why he's successful. But you could so easily imagine a world in which Cornelius Vanderbilt ended up in jail. Mm. He did not end up the richest man in America, the most successful businessman of all time. He ended up as a common criminal. John D. Rockefeller is somewhat similar. I mean, there's a judge in one of his trials in the 1920s who said Rockefeller is no different than a common thief. And I, I, I have different, I, I, I'm not as extreme about Rockefeller as I would be for Vanderbilt, but a lot of the things that Rockefeller did was just straight up breaking the law. And therefore, you can so imagine another world in which 
we think of him as Bernie Madoff and not John D. Rockefeller. Right. And just like, like the, the, a very different, again, the, the line between bold and reckless can be so thin. And that's where I think we have a, a false sense of luck that people like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller got very lucky in the sense that they pushed the boundaries as far as they could go, but they got lucky in the fact that they didn't push them a little bit too far. And I think other people like Madoff and Lehman Brothers and AIG and WorldCom pushed the boundaries too far. And I think it's, it's, it's very hard to understand that in hindsight unless you really dig into these stories. What about optimism versus pessimism? Well, I think the key, the key mistake is that if you look at a long stretch of history, you should be an optimist because humans' ability to solve problems and become more productive and to endure incredible tragedy, if you can be one of the people who survives that tragedy, is incredible. I mean, the, most, the stark ex- example that I know of this is that at the end of World War II, Germany's economy had declined, their, Germany's GDP had declined 90% from its pre-war peak. The German economy was basically did not exist in 1945. The country was bombed into rubble. It basically didn't exist. Within five years, West Germany at least, had surpassed its pre-war GDP peak. It only took five years mm. to rebuild the entire German economy. Like nobody was predicting that it could happen that quickly. But people are so good at rebuilding and enduring and becoming innovative and solving. Like, that's why you should be an optimist, is because people are so good at solving the biggest problems. But the problem is that it's very easy to conflate optimism and complacency. And if you are the kind of person who thinks that the definition of optimism is that everything is going to be great in the future, that's not being optimistic, that's being complacent. And so my definition of optimism is you think the odds are squarely in your favor that over a long period of time, things will work out, but you also accept and know, as a matter of fact, that the path between now and then is going to be a constant chain of surprise and hassle and disaster and recession and pandemic and bear market and collapse between now and then that you need to be able to survive and endure in order to stick around long enough. That's the, that's the thing about optimism. Pessimism, I think, is an interesting thing because it is so intellectually seductive and appealing to listen to pessimism. Like, if, like most pessimism sounds like someone's trying to help you. When they're like, hey, there's this risk in front of you and I'm trying to warn you about it so you don't get hurt by it. That's like, that'll catch your attention. Whereas I think a lot of optimism sounds like a sales pitch. If someone is like, hey, mm-hmm. there's this great new company that's going to sound make you rich, it sounds like a sales pitch. And so people are more persuaded by pessimism, I think. Kahneman makes this point that and from an evolutionary sense, it makes perfect sense that you would be more persuaded by threats than opportunities. Like the goal is to stay alive so that you can actually have a fighting chance to gain the opportunity. You have to stay alive first. But if, if you have any rational sense of history, reasonable sense of history, you should be an optimist. But I think you should be a reasonable optimist in the sense of like, you, you have to learn how to get optimism and pessimism to coexist with each other and to be a long-term optimist and probably a short-term pessimist. That the, there's, it's, like, it's always a constant chain of surprise and disaster in the short run and always will be a constant chain of setback. But if you can stick around long enough and stay in the game long enough, that it's completely foolish to bet against optimism in the long run. Those are the things I think are, are mm. easy to overlook with those topics. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, there's this related issue of we weight losses more than we weight gain, the commensurate gains, right? There's, this is the phenomenon of loss aversion that Kahneman talks about. It's certainly not rational in, at least under most framings, but it is potentially reasonable. I mean, so I mean, there, there's a rational component to it when you think about uh, certainly investing where 
people are just, um, and again, the, the math is not intuitive, but if you buy a stock that goes down 50%, to get back to zero, uh, to get back to where you were before it went down, that requires you know a 100% gain in the stock, right? So that's, you know, it, it's, it's easy to see that losses and gains are not equivalent there, you know, certainly once you've lost. But even under just a, a normal framing where they truly are equivalent, people care more about losing on average than they care about winning. They, it's more painful to lose $100 than it feels good to win $100 for most people most of the time. And I don't know if, there's a, if that's something that can be corrected for psychologically and if it would be wise to correct for it or if we just should just price that into the way we think about the world and, and be motivated on that basis. I think it's it's probably the latter. I don't think we're ever going to solve for it. But one one example that I love from this a couple of years ago is when WeWork nearly collapsed. It was just about to go public. And then the company was kind of exposed to be a, just a money furnace inferno. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of collapsed. Now, when it collapsed, its valuation went from what was supposed to be $100 billion to $10 billion. It fell, its valuation fell 90%. And that, of course, for in WeWork investors and employees and the company's uh, reputation was disastrous. It fell 90%. You could also look at that and say, we work at that point was like a six-year-old company worth $10 billion. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a ridiculous success by any metric. But because it had anchored on this ridiculous high of $100 billion, it felt like a failure 10 times over, even if it was by any metric insanely successful. So I think that that happens a lot. And that's kind of the, the tragedy of bubbles too. I mean, if you mm-hmm. invested in the stock market, if you bought tech stocks in, let's say, 1990, and then you sold them in 2001 after the dot-com bubble collapsed and the market fell 80%, whatever it did. You probably was still made a pretty good return, but that's not how you felt. You felt like you lost 80% of your money. Yeah. And so I think we're, we're always going to anchor to that previous high. Even when the pre- previous high is, was ridiculous, irrational, and fleeting, we're always going to anchor to that right then. The other thing about this is that in markets, the reason that there is a high is because that's when most investors are coming in. So it is true right. that like, you know, Bitcoin hit 67,000 because that's when most investors came into Bitcoin. So now that it's at 20,000, most of them are sitting at a loss, even though Bitcoin has gone from 1,000 to 20,000 in the last five years or whatever. That's, that's amazing. But most investors, like weighted by the amount, like the time that they came into the market are losing money. That's kind of the, the tragedy of bubbles and what it does to society. Given that dynamic and given that the most durable advice, if one could only follow it, is to buy low and sell high in really any investing. How does that square with your dictum to simply just stay in the game for as long as possible? I mean, like, like if is buy low and sell high advice that you simply can't take because it, it just is synonymous with thinking that you can time the market? Yes, I, I think I think in general, buy low, sell high. It's often passed off as great advice, obvious advice, but inherent in that is that you are already predicting when you're going to sell, and that I think becomes dangerous. That does imply some element of like you know when the best time to sell is, and I just don't think that's the case. Now, I will probably sell my investments at some point in my life, although I think a lot of them will just get passed on to my kids or passed on to charity. It's a good chance that I'll never sell them, but you know, I, I think just. Buy low, or not, not even buy low, because low also implies that you have some sense of valuing the stock market you know, properly. I think just 
buying and holding without any intention of selling at any given point of time in the future is the way that is a way to do it. And there might be a, a time when I am in my 70s and I'm approaching my later years of life. And I'm like, look, it seems reasonable to me that the stock market is fairly valued, fully valued, overvalued, however you want to describe it. And I decide that it's a time to sell, but I'm not going to do it because I think the market is going to crash next. I might be doing it because I'm like, oh, I want some money to buy a new retirement house or to put my kids through college, whatever it might be. It's like you're selling because you need the money to make your life better, not because you're some sort of self-proclaimed market wizard. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the flaw in, in buy low, sell high. Although, couldn't it be tempting to play the low side of it? Which I mean, so someone in your shoes who has made a habit of keeping a your money in cash when the market dips, you know, seemingly irrationally. Why wouldn't you be tempted at that point to change your strategy and buy the dips in the market uh, more than you have been? And when you see something that's especially salient, I think in, in general that's. Roughly right, and I, in practice, and I, I I do that to a small degree, not in any kind of mechanized way, mm-hmm. but um, I, I I do that to some small degree. The counter to it is that if you look at the data, and even if you are doing a back test, like you you take all the historic data and you are just torturing the spreadsheet to come up with a cherry picked view of if I bought after the stock market fell thirty percent, if I bought after it fell twenty percent, in hindsight, and you're cherry picking, it's still hard to come up with a reasonable plan that would actually do well over time versus just dollar cost averaging every month. There's, there've been several articles and research reports written with titles along the lines of like, even God couldn't outperform the market. Like even if you know what's going to happen uh, and you're looking in hindsight and you're, you're just like back testing the data, it's still hard to do it because you bring up the, the, the example of Netflix. Like why wouldn't you buy Netflix after it fell 70%? Well, you could say, why wouldn't you buy it after it fell 30%? And the answer yeah. was because it was going to continue to fall another 50% after that. So it's always hard. You know, there's a great book called The Great Depression, A Diary. And yeah, it was yeah. by I've been reading uh, it, yeah. a really, really good book. I, I think it's probably the most uh, important economics book ever written. It was written by, there was this Ohio lawyer named Benjamin Roth who kept a diary during the Great Depression and his son published the diary in 2010. Yeah. And of these diary entries, which of course he, there, there's no hindsight in this. He's writing in real time in the 1930s. And in, in 1930, he writes like, oh, the stock market is so cheap and everyone knows it's cheap and everyone is going in and buying and they're so astounded at these bargains. And then in 1932, he goes back and examines the entry and he's like, we're all so stupid. The market, like the the decline had barely even begun. It went on to fall another 80% after that. And then so it's, it's always tempting to do that, to say that, oh, because the market has fallen X percent, now's a better time to buy. And it, it, in the truth, like it is, like like the market is cheaper today than it was a month ago. That's we know that, but we have no clue whether it's going to get cheaper or whether it might stay this cheap for another ten years. That's what's impossible to know. Yeah, well, you said, just in the interest of giving people some practical advice here, you raised this uh, the topic of dollar cost averaging. Perhaps describe what that is and and describe how someone would implement it. I mean, let's say someone just is sitting on a lot of cash or they've just been paid a lump sum, what is the recommendation for how, if they wanted to take your advice to be a long-term passive investor, how does one implement that advice? I would push back on the word advice just because, again, like everyone is so different. You just got to figure out what works for you. But what dollar cost averaging is, which is what I do, is uh, you invest the exact same amount of money every month, come hell or high water, no matter what the market's doing, no matter what they're chatting about on CNBC, every month, Maybe every other Friday when you get a paycheck, 
you invest X dollars and you do it no matter what. It only works if you can really do it no matter what and you continue to invest when the world is imploding in 2008 and 2020. And during the last six months, you keep doing it. It's just, you're, you're, you're not making any decisions based off of what you think of where the market's going or valuation. You just say, I'm going to invest $100 every other Friday and I'm going to do that for the next 30 years. And if you can actually do that and maintain it, it's very difficult, even cherry picking with hindsight to come up with an investing strategy that outperforms doing that. I think one of the reasons it does so well is because you are by definition taking the emotion out of it. You're not relying on your bravery or your skill or your analysis to figure out when to invest. You're just creating a mechanism and saying, I'm going to invest $100 twice a month. And just it, just, it takes all the guesswork out of it. And the results of it over a long period of time, I think if you can actually do that for your whole career, you can do that for 30, 40, 50 years, the odds that you will end up in literally the top one or 2% of investors are very yeah. high. But how would one implement that strategy? Let's say one had 100% of one's wealth in cash and then listened to this conversation and decided, okay, I, I want to be in the market and I want to be in a, a passive index fund. What percentage would you, would you allocate each month going forward till the person was entirely in the market? This is where personal financial advice is, is more personal than it is financial because the, mm. the answer to that question of how much, what percentage, it's different for everyone. It's different for the period of your life your social aspirations, your family situation, your income, your net worth, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, there's no one size fits all answer. But if you had 100% cash right now and you're like, I'm going to invest half of that and, 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 and you want to invest half of that over the next 10 years, you just divide it by 12 months a year and, and start from there. There's really no perfect strategy. It really is just kind of like rough rules of thumb to do this. The important part- If you were like, generally, but if you're generally optimistic and, and in any 10-year time period, isn't it true that you should have been optimistic? I mean, you, you should, shouldn't you want to be in the market as soon as you could be in the market and yet still avail yourself of taking the emotion out of it and dollar cost average? So technically, the answer to your question is yes, that you should invest in a lump sum manner because if you and I had a spreadsheet open right now, I could show you why that would earn the highest expected returns. If you're an optimist, you want to have that much of your money in the stock market. In the real world, I think the answer is by and large, no, particularly for novice and inexperienced investors, that if you had some sort of a windfall, like a bonus or an inheritance, and you put all of it in the stock market, say six months ago, and then the market loses 25% of its value, like it has, that so many investors in that situation, again, particularly the novice investor, would feel cheated and burned. And a significant portion of them would say, this is not for me. I don't want to do this. The stock market isn't for me. It feels too much like a casino and I want out. So even if the lump sum way would earn higher returns, I think for most people's dispositions, the dollar cost averaging has a higher chance of actually keeping in the game for the longest period of time, which is what's actually going to make the biggest difference to their lifetime returns. Right, right. Interesting. Well, it's been a fascinating tour, Morgan. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think it's important for people to think about? Nothing. I mean, we, we, we covered a lot. This was two hours. This is pretty good. Yeah. This is fun. Yeah, it's been great. Well, so if, if people want more information, from you, obviously, they, they can read your book. Uh, what else do you have out there? Where, where else are you findable online? I spend most of my time, uh, for better or worse, on Twitter. My handle is Morgan mm -hmm. Housel, my first and last name. For better or worse, that's my, that's my drug of choice these days. And, right. um, that's, that's where I spend a lot of my time. Right. I don't know what uh, dollar cost averaging we could have uh, recommended for you on that front, but uh, <laughs> it, sound, it sounds like you're all, in. all you're, in. you're all in the market. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for taking the time, Morgan. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. It's been fun. <laughs>